0: singing, and uh, we want to welcome our Cactus Campus, our Northridge Campus, our Chapel, and uh, those of you who are joining us online, which in today's world are quite a few, and then I don't think there's anybody in overflow during our 8 o'clock service here, but if you are, welcome as well. I uh, said two weeks ago uh, what I'm going to be speaking on today, a once every four years uh, focus that I do uh, called Values for Voting, and, uh, and it's not Jamie getting political, it's Jamie getting moral. So let's just declare that right now. And, and I also did remind you in my Wednesday uh, update that I was going to be talking about this today as well. So if ever there was a need for myself to pray for us, it is right now. So why don't you all bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we live in, uh, well, rather interesting, if not crazy times. They're not necessarily unique, God, to the history of the world. There's been lots of times that people have lived through, even your people, through really difficult governments, through very difficult partisanship and and, and difficult divergences among groups of people. Uh, But Lord, we're living through that now, and even in the midst of a huge health crisis issue uh, with this pandemic. And so, Father, I pray that as we talk as God's people right now, not, not as the world, but as God's people, I pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom. I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through our, our, our minds and into our hearts, and that we might understand Jesus and the Holy Spirit and, and your word and your truth in a way that maybe for some of us we never have. I pray, God, that you would speak to us now. More than anything, give us right thinking and even a right posture toward this world around us that so desperately needs Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. So I'm gonna do something I didn't do the last two election cycles, and that is that I'm gonna take about 10 to 15 minutes up front today and attempt to posture human politics in light of the kingdom of God. This is very important. I don't know why I haven't done this up to this point. So here we go. Did you know that during his 33 years on this earth, including three years of active ministry, preaching and teaching all throughout the Holy Land, that Jesus did not influence or change one policy decision of the Roman government, the vast and prevailing government of his day? Interesting. Imagine that. The incarnate Son of God, the second person of the eternal trinity, visited this planet and on a political level left the Roman government essentially unaltered, at least when it came to any positive structure or policy change. Interesting. Interesting. As you're thinking about that, did you know that during the 60 plus years of what we call the first century church, the church that Jesus started and that was run then by the apostles from 33 AD till John died around 95 AD, that they did not positively influence or change one policy decision that we know of, of the Roman government, the vast and prevailing government of their day? Imagine that, But what some consider to be the most powerful expression of God's local church ever, the first century church, complete with the giving of the Holy Spirit in power on the day of Pentecost, healings and miracles, powerful internal communities, and the word of God being written and disseminated right in front of them, and they did not directly or positively change the policy decisions of the government around them interesting. Did you know (laughs) that for the first 200 years of what we call the early church, the church that existed from about 100 AD till the time of Augustine, it was about a 400 year period, but for the first 200 years of the early church, that they did not positively influence or change one policy decision of the Roman government, the vast government of their day, Imagine that, over 10 generations of Christians propagating their faith all over what today is the modern Middle East, uh, Northern Africa, Europe exploding on the scene for two centuries and they did not directly or positively change the policy decisions of the government around them, at least than we can find record of. And so if you're tracking with all of this, guys, add it up. For almost three centuries, 15 generations, from the time of Jesus to the first century church to the early church, they had essentially no positive policy-making power or influence on the government around them. As one very prominent historian would say, he says this, he says, we know enough about the Roman Empire to be reasonably confident that no general and permanent political improvement marked its history from the second century on, the earliest date when Christianity may be supposed to have exerted an influence upon its political life. And so through today's lens, yours and mine lens, there would be many Christians today who at this point in our discussion would ask this, well, what kind of Christians were they, Jamie? Jamie. I mean, what kind of Christians could have zero to little influence on the political structures around them and be considered Christians? And the answer is simple. They were spirit-filled, God-empowered, Jesus-focused Christians, used mightily by God to build his kingdom here on planet Earth. And they did so without changing hardly any, if any, political policies in the government around them. And to be fair, the Roman government for the first 300 years of the Christian church was not interested in our opinion (laughs) or in any influence by Christians. In fact, not only did they not want Christian input, they totally resisted it. And if you dared to give it, they would likely kill you which is one of the reasons Christians had very little influence on the Roman government. It wasn't until the time of Constantine, the first Roman emperor to become a Christian, that they would have any sensitivity, the Roman Empire, to Christians. And then he did his famous Edict of Milan in 313 AD, and then he merged, as we'll see in a second here, uh, politics and policy with Christian truth in the Roman Empire. And you and I yet have to wrestle today With this. How could God allow this? How could Christians thrive in their faith and culture for the first three centuries with almost zero political influence? And the answer is simple. And it's very important for you and me today before we have any discussion about values and our policy and politics going on today. And here's the answer they understood something back then that Jesus taught that I fear many Christians today don't understand, and it's what I call two-kingdom theology. Two-kingdom theology. Jesus put it this way. He said toward the tail end of his earthly ministry this. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my service would be, would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, he says it again, my kingdom is not, of this realm. I want to try to explain this to you by having you look on the board here. I had our guys draw this for me earlier, and I'm going to change it here in a minute. But you'll notice that this is what Jesus is saying here, that you have the kingdom of God that's represented by this one circle, and then you have the kingdom of this world represented by the other circle. And as best we can tell, what the New Testament teaches, what Jesus taught, is that these two kingdoms are distinct. That's why there's two different circles here. They touch here because Jesus says, you guys are in the world, just not of it. So we know the two kingdoms touch and even interact, but they are very separate kingdoms. My kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. Any of you ever seen that bumper sticker that's common now, especially among young people on their cars, N-O-T-W? And when I first saw that, I didn't know what that meant, N-O-T-W, and I'm seminary trained, so I Googled it, means not of this world. I don't even know if these kids and young families know what kind of bumper sticker they have on their car. It's two kingdom theology in a good way that they're propagating there. They're saying that there's the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God, and I am not of one, I'm of the other. Colossians 1.13 couldn't be more clear. It says, in talking about kingdom theology, it says that he, Jesus, has rescued us from the domain of darkness, which is the kingdom of this world. Now watch this. Into the kingdom of his beloved son. (laughs) So God has taken us out of one kingdom into the other. That's what Jesus meant. There are two kingdoms. And some of you go, well, then, you know, how does this work? Well, God builds his kingdom here, watch this, in and through you and me, in and through people, in and through your heart, your heart, your mind, your mind. He builds his kingdom. And then we gather together in this thing called the church, and it's through his church that he is having influence in this fallen world of ours. That's why Jesus said maybe now it'll make sense that that, that I will build my church and the kingdom of hell will not prevail against it. now it's starting to make sense. But here's what happened sometime around 300 AD. And this is gonna be very important for you and I today. And that is that Constantine came along and praise God, Constantine got saved and now, you're going to love this. The kingdoms looked like this. This is really important. Constantine became a Christian, and for the last 1,700 years, there has now been a merging, I'm going to call it the overlap. There has been an overlap of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world in which now politics and policies and things like that have gotten merged from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God. The church and the state came together in in, in what some argue a very, very good way. And this overlap that we're going to talk about today ha- has grown at times in some cultures. It's shrunk in some cultures. So as you know, in, in, in England, it grew pretty big with the merging of the state and the church. But then in America, it shrunk a little bit with the separation of church and state. But what you need to know is that since the time of Constantine, there has always been this overlap that the first three centuries of Christians never experienced or knew and that many people in today's world don't know about. China knows nothing of an overlap right now. (laughs) Most of Africa knows nothing of an overlap. They, They have no political influence. Why? Go back to that image of the two kingdoms side by side. They're living what Jesus taught. This is not necessarily against what Jesus taught. Here's what you need to know. The overlap's not bad. God uses the overlap as he uses all things for his glory. But here's what's really important, because we're going to move on in just a second. He doesn't need the overlap. That would have been a great place for an amen. So let's take another run at that. He doesn't need the overlap. He really doesn't. And that's what I fear today is that, and again, this is probably the most indicting thing I'm gonna to say to some of you. There are way too many Christians that not only live completely in this overlap and not here, they just park themselves in the overlap, and worse, they pin all their hopes on the overlap. If I hear one more Christian say, this is the most important election, oh, I'm gonna just throw up. I'm serious. Here's what you guys need to understand. God in heaven right now is not saying to the angels, hey angels, look to earth, this is the most important election. He's not saying that. Why? Because God doesn't need the overlap. As we're gonna see in just a minute, he'll use the overlap. He will use our influence in policy if he chooses to, but for three centuries, he didn't need it at all. And the kingdom exploded, some argue did better, on the scene when there was no overlap. So I'm not against the overlap. It is what it is. It's what has existed for 1,700 years. It's just that we need to have perspective when it comes to it. And that's why it took just around 15 minutes right now to set up today so that you and I understand the overlap. And so once we understand the nature of God's kingdom here, the two kingdoms, and how there's a little bit of an overlap today, we're now ready to talk about the role, our role today concerning the overlap, because we do have an overlap. Uh, What values, biblical values, do you and I bring to the overlap? What issues occur in the overlap today, now don't miss this, that require an informed biblical worldview? Because I think you would all agree that if we have an overlap like this, we're not supposed to ignore it. We're not supposed to somehow not be involved in it. In our country today, which is called a democratic republic, they set up our country so that everybody would have a voice, including Christians, including non-Christians, and that we're to speak into the overlap when it comes time to cast our vote. And so it's expected, our founding fathers set it up this way, that Christians would speak their values into the overlap. And that's not being political, it's being moral, as I said earlier. So what values today do you and I bring to the overlap? There are at least six primary values that come directly out of God's revealed word to you and I that I personally consider, this is my list, when it comes to my voting in this overlap that we have. And I'm gonna give them to you today in no particular order except that this first one, in my opinion, is a very strong starting place. And here it is. The first value I consider when I vote is sanctity of human life. Sanctity of human life. Uh, You can clap at that if you'd like. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which is not a fan of protecting the unborn, but maintains probably the best, most solid records on this, by 2011, there had been 50 million aborted babies in America since Roe v. Wade passed in 1973. So, since abortion on demand was legalized at the federal level, 50 million babies since 2011, up to 2011. And though the annual number, thankfully, has been decreasing over the last decade, there is still anywhere between 660,000 and 1 million babies lost annually, which puts the current estimate just shy of 60 million babies lost since 1973. And, folks, I got to tell you, this is not a complicated issue for a Christian. God declares all of life as precious and holy, and that life begins at conception. Psalm 139 makes it clear that God knits each baby together in the mother's womb, and that this unformed substance, that's what the Bible calls it, is declared by him, considered by him to be his creation at conception. And though some have tried to argue, I've heard all the arguments over the years that this is the law of the land and that there really isn't much we can do, I think people who say that, especially Christians, are misguided for two reasons. We all know that the Supreme Court can overturn a decision made by a previous court. So the appointment of Supreme Court justices is always at stake in any presidential election and I believe should largely be considered whenever you and I vote, even this year. But the second reason is equally as important. That is that lower courts and state courts are constantly wrestling with the abortion issue. Constantly. In fact, did you know that in the last decade, there have been well over 300 lower court decisions made by the states that have positively protected the unborn, especially in late term pregnancies. Over 300 of them. But it all depends on the judges appointed by the executive branch and confirmed by the legislative branch and so though my list is not necessarily in order of importance i will tell you that there is a reason that sanctity of life appears at the top of my list because i think this is preeminent especially given what has happened in the last 47 years of the culture that you and i live in in this overlap between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, in this case, our American culture. So it's the first value I consider when I cast my vote. Now, as we further consider this overlap between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, there is a second value that I believe a biblically informed worldview incorporates into our voting practices, and that is the poor. So you have the sanctity of human life, and then as you're going to see, the Bible underlines this one, the poor. First, this. The latest numbers, poverty numbers in the U.S., I will tell you right now, are both encouraging as well as challenging. In 2014, just over one in seven Americans lived in poverty. That's 14.8% of Americans living below the poverty line. But by 2019, watch this, one in 10 Americans lived in poverty. It had dropped to 10.5%. This is really good news. A huge drop in just the last five to six years. And yet many point out, and they're right, That we still have a lot of people in our country living in poverty, like 10%, which is a lot of Americans. And even more sobering, when you look at who these people are living in poverty, seniors fare better than most. Why? Because of Medicare and, and Social Security. But the ones who are hurt the most by poverty in our nation are children and minorities. In fact, right now, the poverty rate among children is one in seven, just shy of 15%. In other words, 15% of the kids in our nation are going to go to bed tonight hungry with what we call food insecurity. And so there still is a lot of work to be done. And though this is a very complex issue in our huge nation, here's what I believe all Christians at minimum need to understand and wrestle with. You ready for this? And that is that there are over 300 passages in the Bible that talk about the poor and the injustice of not taking care of the poor and show God's concern here. So just one example, a very poignant example found in the book of Isaiah as it's talking about Israel and even the future Messiah. The prophet with the voice of God asks this, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor? (laughs) So you and I should always have those with physical and tangible needs on our minds and hearts, and many of us do. I'm not down on us. And even with the help of our pocketbooks, because it's part of following Jesus and caring for those in need. So when I vote, I do consider what a candidate's plan is to address those in need. What the candidate says he or she will do to address poverty in our nation, because this is an important issue for any of us who care. And in addition to this, I also look at the candidate's overall economic plan. And believe it or not, folks, the two go together, the plan for the poor, as well as the overall plan for the economic health of the nation. Because only a strong national economy has the resources to care for the poor. We know this in spades. When we look at third world countries that have no strong national economy, they don't do a very good job of caring for their poor. And yet developed nations that have a strong economy are in a much better position to provide resources for those in need. So I do care what a candidate's economic plan is, including a plan to protect wealth creation and deal with national debt, as well as to care for those in need. I look at the entire picture, and so should you. We want to help those in need and do all we can holistically to better life for all in our country and even in the world. So you got sanctity of life, you have the poor, and then notice next on my list as we consider how we might influence things in the overlap, the issue of what we're simply going to label the family, the family. So here's the deal on this one, and you got to love this, God invented The family, did you know that? (laughs) He invented this thing called the family. And he talks about it a lot in the Bible because he has a high value, a high premium on the family. So think about it, from Genesis two, with the very first marriage between a man and a woman, to Ephesians three, where it talks about how the entire idea of family springs from God as our father, to Jesus's words in Matthew 19 on marriage and divorce, to Paul's words in Romans chapter two on sexual identity, it's all over the Bible, this idea of the family. And God cares deeply about his design for the family. And though sin can make a mess of it, as many of us have found, part of our job as responsible citizens in our country is to vie for what is best in the family, especially when we get a chance to have a say through our voting. Now, I wanna be very clear on something at this point. In a free and diverse American culture that is governed, as I said earlier, by a representative democracy, I believe that all people have rights and that all people deserve to have their rights protected. And by that, I mean that nobody should ever be persecuted for their personal private choices, even choices that I might not agree with as a Christian. I believe that. But this does not mean that we can't influence the fabric of society as a whole in voting family values when it comes to some of our issues today, issues of the overlap. Because as many of us know, the family is under attack and is in trouble in our culture today. Unprecedented divorce rates, out of wedlock births, a redefinition of marriage, and confused sexual identity issues have all contributed to the erosion of what the Bible describes as God's best for the family. And though we certainly can't legislate our way out of this mess, I I don't believe that, and even what issues we should legislate are very debatable even among us as Christians. I just wanna tell you that I personally strongly consider the family and a candidate's view on the family when it comes to the choice that I make in my voting. I do. So, let's review. You got sanctity of life, you have the poor, you have the family, and then there is a fourth cultural and moral issue that stems from a biblical worldview, and you should have seen this one coming, and that is equality and racism equality and racism (laughs) simply put the value enshrined in our declaration of independence is that all people are created equal and should be treated as such and so if there is one thing that god abhors it's racism classifying other groups of people, other groups of human beings based on their ethnicity or skin color and then treating them differently or unfairly. God makes it very clear that he's created all races in his image and that one is not better than the other and that we as Christians more than anybody else should treat people that way and even vie in the public realm for treatment that way. Galatians 3 verse 28 is probably the quintessential passage here. It says to us Christians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for all are, say this word with me, one in Christ Jesus. So we of all people should be championing God's heart here. It's a kingdom ethic that the kingdom of the world right now is focusing on and it surely affects the overlap. And as we all know, our nation is in the midst of a rather severe racial problem. And listen close, because I know how defensive some of you get. I'm going to speak directly to you Christians now. Whether you might agree or disagree with a particular scenario, whether it be in New York or Louisville or Minneapolis or wherever, is really not the point. Don't get hung up on that. What you need to understand is that we have a slew of fellow human beings, even brothers and sisters in the Lord, who feel judged and mistreated by the color of their skin, and that's a problem. Not just for them, but for you and me. And so I think we all agree that racial healing needs to happen in our country, and our entire societal structure is struggling with this, and and we have an opportunity to try to bring some healing to that. And again, I wanna be really clear here. I'm not really into politics on this level. I mean, I've said back in June when we started talking about this for our church, I'm more concerned about how our community of faith deals with this, amen? I'm less concerned about other, more concerned about in here. But as we vote, as you and I vote, I think it's a value we should consider in our voting, equality and racism. What is a candidate's view here and what are they gonna do as we consider the overlap. And then in continuing my list of biblical values that affect this overlap that we laid out earlier, I I then further consider religious freedom. So you got sanctity, human life, the poor, the family, equality and racism, and then this one's very important, religious freedom. Here's why this is important. From the very founding of our country, when various religious groups were looking for a place to practice their faith Without fear of persecution or interference from the state, religious freedom for 250 years has been a high and unique value for America. So much so that there are many other countries today who literally salivate after the freedom and protection that you and I have. And here's what's really cool God is all about freedom of choice when it comes to religion. He wants people to be able to freely choose him or not, to freely choose to worship or not, to freely choose to serve or not. Kathy will know this verse. There was an amazing scene as the Israelites were getting ready to go into the promised land where Moses has now gone to heaven and Joshua's leading the crew and they're just about ready to go into the promised land but it's inhabited by other people and they're about ready to cross the river and and look at what Joshua says to the people. He says, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your forefathers served which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. What a powerful passage. (laughs) It's essentially telling us here that God wants everyone obviously especially his people to choose him. He vies for religious freedom but as many of us know Over the past few decades, as our culture has become increasingly secular here in America, the temptation has been for some of our leaders to not value the freedoms that our country was founded upon. And again, this is where the issue, I'm going to bring it up once again, of selecting judges and justices comes into play. Because there are some court justices that have a high respect for these issues, and there are some that seemingly don't. And so once again, the appointment of court justices, even Supreme Court justices, is a strong consideration for me as I vote because the freedoms that you and I enjoy are in play. And then there is a sixth and final value, I believe is important at this time, and one that is currently well within the overlap that we started with earlier, and it's what I call strangers in the land. Strangers in the land. And I call it this very respectfully because this is what the Bible calls it. The Bible is clear, folks, as to how Israel was to treat strangers in the land who happened to non-aggressively cross the border and yet had not become Jewish. There's a ton of passages, but just quickly look at a few of them with me so that we have a clear understanding of what God's heart is here In Exodus 22, he says to Israel, you shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then moving on in Deuteronomy 10, verse 19, he says, so show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And then this is my favorite in Leviticus. He says, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself, because you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God." Which is kind of a nice way of saying, listen to me on this one. This is God speaking to you. You are not to be wrong toward them or oppress them, you are to love the alien, you are to treat them as the native among you. And folks, listen very carefully, because I know this is a hot issue for a lot of you. What we need to understand is that in Israel back then, this posture towards strangers in the land did not take away an iota of border security. Israel had tough borders back then and today. It didn't even suggest to the Israelites back then a lax pathway towards citizenship. Many people don't know this, but there was a pathway for a Gentile to become a citizen of Israel in the Old Testament. And there were some pretty big hoops she had to jump through. <laughs> One of them was to be circumcised <laughs> as part of showing that you're part of the Israelite community. And so again, they had a pathway to citizenship just like many vie for today. It's simply that when there was a stranger in the land, this is how God wanted them treated not wronged nor oppressed, but to be loved and treated as, a native, as the native among you. And so I am of the personal biblical opinion that many of the responses, now listen closely, on both sides of the aisle, many of the responses to the current immigration problem we have in our country, I believe have yet to fully grasp and understand God's heart here. And I am not suggesting amnesty, I'm not entering into that debate, I'm not even sure what the solution should be. I'm a pastor, not a politician. But I do consider how our leaders respond here and what kind of heart and thinking they have when I cast my vote. Because this is an important issue to God. So let's review the list one last time. Sanctity of human life, the poor, the family with all the things going on with that, equality and racism, religious freedom that you and I share and love, strangers in the land. Let me ask you, is this a complete and thorough list, yes or no? Of course not. It's my list, you need to understand that. These are the things that I believe the Bible puts a premium on and they're the things that I consider when I as your pastor vote. But you need to understand, that there are plenty of other issues that matter. (laughs) In fact, I got plenty of emails and phone calls this week from loving Christian people telling me I should mention this and mention that. I love you guys so much and mention that and and all of that. And here's the things that I heard and I I don't disagree with this. Jamie, law enforcement, drug abuse, foreign policy, gender equality, urbanization, education, the environment. I, I don't disagree with any of those things. And so, maybe your list will look a little bit different than mine, and that's okay. But please hear this, and, and, and again, this is the second big challenge I'm gonna give you today. I can defend each and everything on my list as a biblical value that God has revealed in His Word that He cares about. I can. I mean, again, some of you are going to send me emails that are critical. I I get it. I understand that. (laughs) But but I'm hiding behind this book and and as I understand it. And and my only encouragement to you is that as you develop your own list, be a man or woman of the book. Amen. Understand what the Bible says and be able to defend your list as God's heart. Because when I go to vote, I consider what God's heart is for this nation and for even his people. Now, one last thought before we go to the communion table today. And I'm going to take us back to where we began today because quite frankly, I don't want to end on a list. I want to end having a a discussion with you guys once again about the kingdom of God. Here's what you need to understand. Whether your candidate gets into office or not, depending on who your candidate is, please more than anything realize, guys, that God is still on the throne. And not only that, but I'll blow you away even more. His kingdom moves on unobstructed. That's the reason I took 15 minutes earlier to try to hammer home to you two kingdom theology. Because again, as we reviewed, there's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world. We happen to have a little bit of overlap today. That's great, God uses that. But when there was no overlap, God still did his best work. (laughs) And here's what I discovered. I knew this, but I kind of just reviewed it again this week in my study. (laughs) Even though the first three centuries of the Christian church had almost zero political influence, I'm going to blow you away. They still had a lot of influence. It just wasn't political. Most historians will tell you that what Christians did to the social fabric of the Roman culture was so powerful, so almost unrepeatable, that the history books are still trying to make sense of it. Let me give you some examples. Roman culture had slavery, as many of you might know. Slavery's not new and the Roman culture would capture other cultures and make slaves of those people. Slaves in droves became Christians in the first three centuries. Do you know why? Because they were taught that God loves them and that they are just equal in the eyes of God to everybody else on planet Earth. That in God, there is no slave nor free. And and what the Roman culture did to change people's, or I'm sorry, what Christians did to change Roman and Greek minds on slavery is still being written about today. Greed and materialism. Many tout the Roman culture as one of the greatest cultures it was to ever exist up to that point in time with the famous Roman roads and and, and the Greek world coming out of that or coming before that. I mean, it was just a a powerful culture, but it was very materialistic. And what the first three centuries of the church did with monasticism and asceticism, which are simply fancy words for saying we're not going to be greedy and materialistic, had a profound influence on the culture around them. Obviously, pagan religion. Much of Greek and Roman thought was polytheistic, even humanistic, and the strong apologetics of the first three centuries of the Christian church when it came to monotheism and Jesus had a huge impact on the culture around them. Probably one of the biggest impacts was when it came to the family. That's why I mentioned it earlier. Uh, Things, values like forgiveness, kindness, community, patience, even their tough view on divorce and, and, and marriage. It all had a huge impact on the Roman culture around them. This will blow you away. Women. <laughs> you know, Christians today are seen as kind of really conservative when it comes to women. Well, uh, for about 2,000 years, Christians has always been seen as a-, 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 a religion, as a faith that attracted women in droves. Why? Because Jesus attracted a lot of women, and he respected them. He loved them. He cherished them. He valued them. And he said, you are a beautiful and wonderful creation of God, unique and powerful in the influence you have in the world around you, even in your family. And he elevated women in the first century and second century and third century church did that. And so 60% of the converts in the first three centuries of, of the Christian church were women. That wasn't bad. It was because it rocked the Roman world around them. Christians invented almsgiving, which is basically a ministry to the poor and philanthropy. And then obviously morality. (laughs) They had a huge influence on the morality of the culture around them. Here's my point. They had no overlap. They had no political influence. And yet as they were kingdom of God people, and as God did all these changes in them, it affected the kingdom of this world around them Because God's kingdom is unobstructed. So he's not biting his fingernails over this election, amen? He's not up in heaven telling the angels to be on bended knee uh, on Tuesday night, November 3rd. You and I are all concerned about this election because we live, quite frankly, a bit too much in the overlap. Our comfort depends on the overlap. The overlap's not bad. I benefit from it. I live in it. Our country was found on it. All good stuff. Just put it in perspective, gang. Put it in perspective. Your soul will be glad you did. You'll be much more usable in the hands of God. And at the end of the day, you're gonna be a more joyful Christian, amen? I'm glad I'm a values voter. I'm glad that I'm driven by biblical values that at the very least provide for me a platform on how to pray and how to decide. And I hope the values help you as well. And I hope understanding the kingdom also influences your posture toward all of this. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father, it's a good day to go to the communion table to celebrate what really matters most, and that's the heart of our faith, that Jesus came and died for us to bring us out of the domain of darkness into the wonderful kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And so I pray, Father, that as we celebrate as the core of our faith here and at other campuses and venues and even at home, that, God, you would ground us, center us, cement us on what matters most. And, Lord, I do pray for our world. I pray that this world would see Jesus in us. I pray that this world would, would long for the wonderful things that you do in our community that can also affect the communities around us for sure and give us hope, give us hope that we can spread to this world that desperately needs it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.